Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law, brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. And hi there, you're listening to Done By Law. Uh, Thank you to Tuesday Home Time and uh, for... Uh, yet another fantastic show. Um, so tonight we have a special guest in the studio today uh, on Tuesday the 10th of April. Um, Way, what's going on today in today's Done By Law show? Okay, so last week um, we saw in the news that video footage was released of um, police violently assaulting a man after being called upon to conduct a welfare check on him Um, and that video footage is incredibly distressing to a lot of people Um, and what this has done is it's renewed some fresh debate about the mechanisms that we use to ensure that complaints against police are properly investigated and that police are held accountable for misusing their power for using violence and for failing to uphold their duties. Um, These extreme incidents of violence are only one type of common complaint against police However, we're increasingly being made aware of other ways in which um, police have interaction with the community and um, where that that interaction causes um, distress and concern. Um, And one of the common areas is in family law. So we've been very lucky today to be joined on the program by um, Marianne Jago. Jago. Jago, sorry, Marianne. um, Who is a senior policy advisor at Women's Legal Service Victoria. Um, she's had over 20 years of experience working um, with NGOs and um, in government and the private sector as an aid worker, and her speciali- speciality um, includes gender and accountability. So Marianne has been working on a police accountability project in the context of family violence, and um, we're speaking to her today um, in relation to... Um, police accountability in the family violence space, what the issues are and whether the current system of police accountability is sufficient when dealing with complaints against police by women who experience family violence. So thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. (laughs) So, but before we get to it, uh, listeners, we're going to listen to a tune by Honey Bain called Girl on the Run. Uh, And so, uh, and when you come back, uh, then we'll be uh, grilling Marianne on all (laughs) things family violence and police accountability. Stay tuned. You're listening to Done by Law. Wow, that was Girl on the Run by Honeybane. Welcome back to Done by Law. You're listening to 3CR on Tuesday, the 10th of April, and it's 6.08pm. And tonight we've got Marianne Jago as a guest. Uh, Marianne's worked in aid as a lawyer and as a researcher. Marianne's currently with Women's Legal Service Victoria as a senior policy advisor. 
Marianne, Women's Legal Service are at Melbourne Magistrates Court every day providing a duty service to women applying for and also responding to intervention order applications, many initiated by police. What are some of the issues women face seeking help from police for family violence? Um, there's a range of challenges, um, and thanks for that intro too, Bonnie. Um, I think one of the main issues that we see is that it's such a challenge for many women to get their story actually into the arena where there can be some kind of adjudication about what's actually happened. So those challenges are particularly acute for uh, refugee and migrant women. Um, uh, there's, there's, um, you're probably aware there's a code of practice around um, police conduct for the investigation of family violence. Um, and given that we're talking about police accountability, it seems appropriate to kind of raise that right mm. up front. Um, so there's some really good practice set out in the code of practice. What we see is that um, sometimes um, that practice is not adhered to. Um, and so I, I think when you look through the practice, there is a real focus on getting a clear body of evidence, you know, forward or collected. Um, and so when that when that isn't done, it then becomes very, very difficult for a woman to um, reverse uh, a situation where she um, may be identified wrongly as the primary aggressor or the respondent on an intervention order. Um, and the kinds of challenges that she can then face when that happens uh, are really scary. Um, I won't, I won't go into those now, but, um, yeah, so that, that really is a, a main issue um, in terms of you know, barriers to her getting justice. There's been some recent research in New South Wales which really points to um, a lack of faith uh, in interactions with police. Mm. Um, this is something that obviously we're seeing played out, um, you know, in video evidence, you know, why people have some fear of police, etc. Um, so I think the work for us, you know, particularly as duty lawyers and, and in our advocacy for women impacted by family violence is how do we navigate that space where we really are relying on police to act protectively um, towards women in this situation and yet um, there are these situations that we're aware of where that doesn't actually work out really well. So that's a real challenge for us because um, when it doesn't work out well, we have the initial perpetration of family violence and then we have a secondary, what we call a secondary perpetration mm. where actually the system is then perpetrating on the woman. So um, it, she, she becomes traumatised in the first instance and then she's re-traumatised, you know, in the second instance um, and things, you know, can really go downhill from there. So what are the sort of circumstances where police come along and they say that the woman is the aggressor in a situation where... Um, you would say she she wasn't. What what kind of circumstances lead to that decision being made? Um, I think police come to a, a family violence situation, and this is a real kind of challenge that, that's being debated quite a bit, actually, and that's the difference between a cycle of violence, so multiple incidences over time, and <coughs> police attending situations or family violence scenes in homes, and they're really looking to collect evidence, which is they're looking to prosecute a crime, essentially. Mm. And so there's a real tension between a cycle of violence and incident-based crime. Um, so um, this is where women get really caught up because if they've used violence um, in an incident and the police see that violence on its face without taking into account a broader context they can then sort of be persuaded or decide to, to you know, take that up as a criminal incident and then, um, you know, in the family violence situation, name her as the primary aggressor on an intervention order. So this is, this is really, this is, you know, this is a real challenge and, and 
I think, you know, the research that I was citing from New South Wales that I was swatting up on this afternoon before <laughs> coming in, um, really, you know, it, it pointed to um, one of the real challenges is that um, there's, there really is a lack of training in police and a poor culture um, around family violence, given the size of the problem and I think, you know, ABC is, is now sort of updating, regularly updating when it reports on family violence. You know, this many women have died, this many police attendances have happened just today or whatever. So it's a huge resource issue for police. They mm. spend a lot of time on it, but there's not that kind of... Uh, you'd expect much more training, and I understand as a result of the Royal Commission on Family Violence, you know, there are recommendations around training, and I understand police are taking this very seriously, and there's a whole new sort of tra- centre of excellence on family violence, I believe it's called. Um, so there is there is this notion that there, there does need to be a shift happen mm. um, for police. But, the, you know, the research uh, definitely shows that, that many attending police officers understand very poorly uh, their own code of conduct and, and the relevant law around family violence and, um, you know, the nature of you know, the cyclical nature of, of uh, family violence um, and also that if a woman's acting violently... Um, one of my one of my great colleagues, Jill Pryor from the Legal Advocacy Law and Advocacy Centre for Women, tells you know a story, um, and I hope she won't mind if I tell it again. But essentially, you know, the the police are called to an incident. Um, the woman's not able to speak. Um, I think she doesn't speak the language, but for for this um, anecdote, it doesn't matter too much. But essentially, the police see that that. Uh, the man has uh, bite marks on his arm, you know, and so they name her as the primary aggressor on the on the safety notice uh, for the intervention order. Uh, and essentially, when when there's a bit more digging done, uh, and and when she is interviewed separately, uh, I think by the lawyer rather than the police, although the police should interview her separately. Often that doesn't happen, but so in this case, she is finally interviewed, and and it turns out that, you know. This is a defensive injury. A bite mark on a forearm generally means he had her in a headlock. Yeah. So yeah. she's at and the and the, the most common way to die from family violence, if I can put it in really blunt terms, is uh, choking. So he's choking her. Um, she may be at risk of being killed, and so she's biting her way out of it mm. essentially, uh, and yeah. still being then re-perpetrated, re-sort of perpetrated as this second layer of perpetration, despite having been through this incredibly traumatic situation, and now she's got to she's got to go through the court and. I think it's important to really put it out there that many people who, or I'm going to say men who commit family violence, have become very cluey about how to use the system um, to, to, you know, control her. Uh, they do that directly by how they interact with her, but then they get the system on side, and they're really clever in how they get they get you know the system to collude with them. You know, they can appear as very charming and very articulate in how they tell their story, and they're very convincing. Um, and this is their art. Like this is this is how they run their energy. This is how they op- operate. So, you know, when when um, uh, 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 I'm going to say survivor of family violence is is kind of in this situation, and she's been disempowered, and she may be injured and unable to speak for herself. Um, perpetrators are really able to tell a story that that is very convincing, um, mm. and that you know that that is a significant piece of family violence training is how to act with you know how to interact with perpetrators in a way that you're not colluding. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I what's just come to mind for me is I remember uh, going to a community event somewhere in the deep suburbs um, out here in Victoria, and there was a former police officer who was I think a keynote speaker at this particular event and I was like horrified but also just really saddened as well when he got up and he started talking about how um the 
cult, like he he was basically illustrating what you have talked about, uh, Marianne, in terms of the culture within uh, Victoria Police, in my view, needing to shift as well. Because he started talking about how um, there was what what's been talked about in the in some parts of the police force as what's called the Rosie Batty effect in a very pejorative way and and I remember I had to I actually had to get up and leave from this particular forum because it was so awful that somebody who was a former police officer in a former like quite high role was saying all of this in a very local community event what did what did they mean by that well he was he was saying that um the implication was that uh, because Rosie Betty's such um, been such a strong advocate for change and recognition of the experiences of family violence survivors that the police now are forced to respond, but that he was implying that there wasn't that much family violence that mm. around. Mm. And it was, yeah, it was pretty awful, I mm. remember. So, you know, you're talking about, you know, the, the culture needing to shift within um, Victoria Police. Like I, I know from that... Uh, you know, just in the work that I do, that there are certainly um, a number of members of the police force who really are on board and there Mm. are numbers that are not. And they themselves speak to me, the ones that, you know, we work with, about how difficult it is to affect change, you know, for themselves as well. You know, it's a gigantic um, spider of a bureaucracy that has all these different legs that are difficult to control. Yeah, that's Mm. right, that's right. And and there may be cultural problems within uh, VicPol, um, as there are across, you know, police forces yeah. everywhere. Yes. Um, you know, uniform services tend to attract, you know, really great people. And I met three incredible police officers just the other day in at our office, and mm. we're really looking for ways to collaborate and work together. And I was really heartened. And, and um, you know, they were describing what they do. And I was mm. like, wow, you know, I wish. <laughs> but we see the really bad practice. You know, we really see the worst of the worst um, because of the terrible impacts that it has on the women that we're supporting. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think, I think you know, there are cultural problems and there are really great, you know, the great police out there. You mm. know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a cop. That was, you know, and, and there are good reasons for that. And we kind of, we come into these professions because we share that, you know, many mm. of us really share that wish to be of service and to do something good. You know, and, and the p- people become police for the same the same reason. But um, you know, there are some serious there are some serious issues around power over. You know, and I, I experienced this myself the other day. I was in a cafe, and um, it was in I won't say where it was. Um, <laughs> yeah, stop, stop! <laughs> I'll never be able to go back again. Um, I was in a cafe the other day, and um, four guys came in, four uniformed guys, and they were all like really strong built mm. in their uniforms, and you know, not much hair, and looked like they were all lifting weights. And um, I was just like, God, I just want to. I feel a bit scared, you know. And they weren't doing anything; they're just yeah. buying coffee. You know, uh, but they took up a lot of space, and there was no—they had no sensitivity to to how they were affecting how the space, space how yep. much space they were taking up. There was mm. no kind of sensitivity yeah. to that, and I ended up just moving away because I thought, God, they could just arrest me for anything. You know, that was how I felt, and I—I I was telling a colleague about it, you know, the next day, and I just thought, God, if if I work on police accountability, and if if I, you know, if something did, something untoward did happen, there was no suggestion that they were doing anything mm. untoward, but I kind of felt like they could, and they could get away with it, mm. you know. And I thought, if I work on these issues, and I'm scared, like how to mm. how does mm. someone with a mental health problem who's you know dealing with you know who's known to police or mm. who's drug addictions or whatever, how do they feel? Um, you know, and. It, 
And I, I don't know what the answer to that is because police do need to carry that sense of authority. You know, they really do in order to do their job. So it's, you know, it's, 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 there's no easy answers. Mm. So um, women's are working with um, Flemken Police Accountability Project um, to look at police accountability in the family violence space. I'm just wondering if you could talk about that project. Yeah, happy to, happy to. So um, you may know that Flemington Kensington Community Legal Centre have a really distinguished um, history in working uh, with on police accountability issues, and they've they've really had some great success, particularly in the racial profiling space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to say hello to my colleagues at Flemington because they they might just might be listening. Um, and of I course they're listening. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> uh, Hello. I, and I want to... Uh, well, essentially, we've been working really closely with them and also with St Kilda uh, Community Legal Centre. So our three centres are really... Uh, oh, and, and interestingly, funded by the Federation. I should put that plug in. We're working <laughs> together um, in trying to draw into our... So St Kilda and Women's, we're trying to draw into our centres the, um, the specialist knowledge in police accountability that FLEM can have mm-hmm. and women's contribution is our specialist knowledge of family violence. So there's, there's the cross-pollination is really the aim. Um, and that work has been really, really interesting um, and really, really challenging. So, you know, there's a range of issues that happen when you work across organisations like how do, we, how do we make the data speak to each other and how do we, you know, how do we map what we're doing and how do we share it and how do we teach each other and how do we teach within our incentives and that kind of thing so so really what that work is about is is bringing out Flemken's expertise in police accountability and applying that to to you know in the family violence space um but it's not it's it's not readily applicable necessarily like there's a whole bunch of other considerations when you're looking at family violence um so what and what we're seeing, and I think this is one of the one of the really challenging things that we're seeing, is that that women impacted by family violence who who then have this second level of perpetration because the police have either misused their power or have been sort of are colluding in this misuse of power. They're so disheartened, and they're generally women who don't have a lot of agency in their own life. They often um, have had really challenged upbringings and experience. There's, there's often a previous relationship with police, you know, because of drug misuse or, or whatever. And so they're already in this incredibly defensive position, and they kind of, they're, they're kind of, um, they're kind of really, you know, when we say we can support you to make a complaint, initially they'll go for it, and they'll say that'd be really great and you believe me don't you and it's you know and it's kind of heartbreaking but like, yes yes we believe you you know um but then her immediate needs are generally so great that complaining to the police is kind of really low on her list of survival you know mm-hmm. hierarchy yeah. things that need to happen so if she's you know if she's been misidentified for example as a primary aggressor when she's in fact the victim after you know in a period of cyclical and horrible family violence um, she may have been excluded from her house. She may have been separated from her children. She may have had, you know, whatever breakdown you would have in that situation. She may breach the order where she's not supposed to go back to the house, which she goes back to get medication or whatever. She gets criminalised. She ends up in jail. And I'm telling you, it sounds like a really dramatic story, but it's really shocking how often this happens. Like, it is so routine. And the, the criminalisation of women in Victoria is... is I want to say going through the roof, and I think that's right. I think it is actually going through the roof. Um, and part of that is the perverse application of this, you know, increase of policing. The, poli- the naughty police will call it the Luke, uh, the Luke Batty effect. But the flip side of that is there's also there's there's a there's a 
you know, what's that? Oh, God, I'm remembering a word from law school, a concomitant, uh, you oh know, over... Oh, my God, what is that? I know. <laughs> <laughs> There's also this kind of corral, I can't even, corral, let's go back to concomitant. Um, there's also this kind of effect where, where women are being criminalised uh, through the misapplication of, of um, family violence uh, protective mm. processes. Mm. Yeah. So in terms of the project uh, that's spanning across three different community legal centres, what is, um, so, uh, so, so, you know, you're collecting data and you're also trying to uh, teach each other about your different expertise in order to assist more people. And um, could you tell us a bit more about it? How long is the project and, you know, will there be a report and what is the, uh, what is the proposed purpose of all yeah, of that? Yeah, what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a pilot. It's a six-month project. It's one of ten projects that um, the Federation's funding. Um, mm-hmm. So the idea is, you know, in the... In, by the end of the project, you know, we've done we've done some good mapping and we've had really great support for the project. Um, so really the aim is by the end of the six months is to have a really clear pathway uh, for women who are impacted by these duty failures. And mm. we, at Women's, our focus is on has been on misidentification, though we're finding that we really need to broaden that out. Um, what we're what we're kind of figuring out between the three legal centres is that Flemkens focus on police duty failures. Sorry, Flemkens focus on on um, making police complaints or complaints about police misconduct tend to come sort of later in the process that then the point at which women's has been engaging. So we we kind of engage you know much further upstream. We mm. sort of you know. Um, soon after the family violence incident has happened and where our engagement is really around our duty lawyering and um, how we are in court and our efforts to um, make sure that she's not misidentified, you know, and there's some great practice that our lawyers are now gathering around that, you know, what do we say when we're trying to get a strike out? What do we say when we're trying to make sure there's no order made? What what are the things that we can ask be put onto any order? What adjournment should we seek? What risk assessment should we ask? Well, so all of that kind of practice we're gathering together. Yeah, great. Yeah, no, it, it's, um, it's been kind of, yeah, we had one of our lawyers come up to me the other day because we put a checklist together and we've done it collaboratively and um, but just trying to bring all this practice together so so the lawyers have got it at their fingertips and I had one of our lawyers, Beck, come up to me the other day and said, oh, I used that cheat sheet. It was really great. And she said, why did you put section this and that on? It's the wrong one. We'll have to change that. I said, that's great, Beck. <laughs> that's really good. So, But it's just so that they have it there, you know, because mm. it's such a pressured day, you know, in court mm. and, and just to have any any support to make sure that the best advocacy is available at mm. the time um, is really important. So that's that's kind of the, what women's has been doing. We've been tracking that. And then when it sort of doesn't work out, you know, how do we interact with police? So mm. that it's really been um, what we, we, we've been figuring out. So earlier on, sort of around December, you know, we were writing letters to the individual police stations trying to get hold of the informant and the family violence liaison officer, etc. And we found that that didn't work and it was, mm. it was more time than we had uh, for no apparent outcome. So then we just started, you know, we kind of talked around with each other and was just like, well, let's just call a station sergeant. So then we started doing that. Um, got a little bit better redress with that, um, but the sense the sense really is that what we need to do is build those relationships with police mm. um, ahead of time, you know, kind of at senior levels, and so they're just our go-to people and hopefully they can sort it out. That's mm. kind of our plan at the moment, but it's very much a moving feast and yeah. um, 
It's kind of funny that Bonnie's sitting here asking me the questions when she knows so much more about this than I do. <laughs> Bonnie's actually been <laughs> Bonnie's nodding. <laughs> Bonnie's actually been doing some really courageous advocacy for some of her clients and just really sort of taking it back to police and mm. just saying, Well, what's going on and, mm. and sort of really pushing them. So so having, you know, just kind of me sort of following them around actually and kind of documenting what they're doing has been a big part of, of the work for women's at least. And then then sort of sharing that with our colleagues. Um, in the other community legal centres, seeing what they're doing, how they're talking to their lawyers and, um, yeah, just sharing practice so that we're yeah. kind of all um, raising each other up, as it were. Yeah. Um, and then so hopefully, you know, if we can get better, um, you know, do some great advocacy around the intervention order space, we'll have less of this kind of um, cause for the longer term complaint, although some of some of that really poor police practice will have occurred around the intervention order mm. process. Um, it's a kind of a difficult... Um, you know, in a sense, there is a real moment, and I'm really glad we're talking about this on radio. It is a real moment, um, particularly in Victoria, around police accountability. Mm. I mean, the the, the CCTV mm. um, evidence is really, um, mm. you know, as you say, it's shocking, and it's also Flem can have have succeeded in police complaints almost almost entirely where there is there has to be usually there has to be video evidence yeah. for it to succeed. So that, you know, and we're learning from that practice and, like, how we how do we talk to our clients? You know, if you've got a recidivist um, perpetrator, then get yourself a CCTV camera in your front mm. yard, you know, mm. because then if you then if you have a breach and, you, you you know, if he comes over and that's in breach of the intervention order and he's banging on the door or whatever and he's saying whatever he's going to say, you know, you can call the police and they'll say, you know, often, you know, they'll say it's a technical breach, um, you know, if he's, you know, and they, they don't have evidence. But if you've got, if you've got, if you have some evidence, this is really mm. important, you know, so diary notes and all, you mm. know, text messages, all of this kind of, your evidentiary base is essential. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Marianne, we, we could continue, but we've actually got um, the uh, voice of West Papua waiting outside oh, right. at 6.30, so yeah. I'm so sorry. Um, you've been listening to Done by Law, and we've had uh, Marianne Jago, who is Senior Policy Advisor and Lawyer with Women's Legal Service, speaking to us about uh, the Police Accountability Project in conjunction with St Kilda Legal Centre and Flemington Kensington Legal Centre. We hope to get you to come back again so then you can report back more on uh, finding more findings as you proceed further into the project. Um, now, before we hear Voice of West Papa, uh, Tamara Brown will be singing Come My Way. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.